Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. For those of you who are visiting with us this evening, we are going through the book of Romans and we are looking at a particular theme, the theme of the body and Paul's use of the word body and related terms throughout uh, the letter. And we have come to Romans chapter 7 where we will again see that, uh, that theme being uh, referenced and talked about. And we will pick up our reading this evening in verse 7, and I will read through the end of the chapter, but our focus will be on verses 14 through 25. Romans chapter 7, beginning the reading in verse 7. This is God's holy word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from, this, from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. The interpretation of Romans 7 has uh, been difficult over the centuries. There have been numerous interpretations offered about who the I is in this text that is speaking. Is Paul speaking about a pre-conversion experience? Or is he talking as one who has been converted and who is walking the Christian life 
but still finds this opposing principle warring against, against the law that he delights in with his mind. And some have tried to resolve the question by saying it's not a question of before or after conversion, but it's a question of before or after Christ historically. Some have suggested that this is a, a rhetorical device that Paul is speaking as though he were Israel under the law and expressing what Israel was experiencing until the Messiah came. Good Christians, good exegetes have come down on different positions of, of this question of how we are to interpret and understand this text. Many theologians in the early church saw this as one speaking, Paul speaking from the perspective of somebody who, uh, who was still under the law and had not yet uh, received salvation in Christ. Uh, throughout the Reformation, the interpretation that, no, this is, this is Paul speaking even as one who is regenerate uh, became a, a very common and prevalent perspective. And so there are different uh, groups of Christians who have come down interpretively in different places. But even then, there are some Christians who themselves have changed positions during their lifetime. Augustine was one of them. Augustine changed his interpretation of Romans 7. And not just in antiquity, but even in modern times, there is a, a professor, a New Testament professor at a well-known seminary who has written a commentary on the book of Romans. And between the first and second edition of his commentary, he has changed his interpretation. So this is a difficult text that we come to. I would... And so the, the interpretation that I'm going to take and, and offer to you this evening is, is one that I will give with some reservation, recognizing that there is a variety of opinion. There are good reasons for the variety of these opinions, and that even Christians themselves come to change their understanding and position in their interpretation of this text. So it may well be the case that at a later point in my life, you are hearing a very different sermon on Romans 7. But I would like to try to focus this evening on the things that we can say for sure about this text. And I think a, a fruitful way forward then as we consider this text is to rather ask the question, what is Paul doing with this text? Why is he speaking in the first person in this way? What's, what is he seeking as the the response or the outcome on the part of his readers and hearers. And I would suggest to you this evening that Paul is modeling for his readers and hearers a certain way of thinking and regarding the law, and a certain way of thinking and regarding sin as an opposing power as revealed by the law. And so that this could have application for any, uh, uh, this could be an application that would be compatible with a number of, of interpretations that it could be a hearer who is outside of Christ, who makes his boast in the law. And Paul is bringing that law boaster into a new way of looking at and understanding how should you respond to the law. Or it could be that there are Christians who are confused about 
uh, the relationship between the law and the work of Christ. And Paul is bringing them into teaching them what is a, an appropriate way to think about the law in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the point that Paul brings us to, the climactic point that he brings us to, is in verses 24 and 25, where we see two elements that Paul is leading his readers and listeners to. He is leading them to this anguished cry, this lament, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? So he's leading them to a, a kind of lament when the law is in view. But he also leads them to thanksgiving. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this evening, I would like to try to lead you, as we work through this text, to that point as well. So that all of us, including me, can, can say with Paul, can, can give out that lament from the heart, crying out for the mercy of God in Christ, but not not leaving us there without an answer, but then continuing forward into thanksgiving because God has given an answer to this heartfelt cry of anguish. So lament and thanksgiving. Well, first, as we consider the lament, there are... Uh, the, the thing to lament as we consider this text is that the law reveals but does not overcome sin. The law reveals, but does not overcome sin. So as we work our way through this passage, Paul is going to come to a certain conclusion. He's going to, on the one hand, express a delight that he has in the law, but then he's going to recognize that despite that delight that he has, that delight does not overpower the outcome of sinful actions that despite that delight, there are still sinful actions that are being produced by him. And then he will come to a conclusion that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is cause for lament, for an anguished cry. So, so look with me at the text. We'll begin with verses 14 and 15. For we know that the law is spiritual... But I am a flesh, sold in bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And so Paul is, is very clear to express a high view of the law in terms of its content. In terms of what the law says, is the law this bad thing that is uh, of itself uh, wrong? By no means. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is something that he delights in. The law is something that he desires to do. But as he delights in the law and as he seeks to carry it out, he finds that something goes horribly, horribly wrong. He doesn't recognize the outcome. Something doesn't compute. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. So there is this good thing that I want to do, but I'm not doing it. 
And not only that, but the very thing that I positively hate is actually the thing that I'm doing. This is not because he does not delight in the law. This is not because the mind is uh, darkened and uh, despising the law. But I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And then he comes in verse 17 to this conclusion. If this is the case, that on the one hand, with my mind, I delight in the law, but in the actions that I commit, I see a different outcome then I come to this conclusion that there is a, another agency at work within me to produce this sinful effect, and my mind's delight in the law is not enough to overcome it. Verse 17, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. It's not I, it's not this inner man that is the one who, he says, is carrying out the action, but it's sin resident within me. Sin as some kind of, of power that has begun to take up residency within the flesh. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then he, he clarifies, that is in my flesh. As distinct from the, the mind or that inner man which de delights in the law of God. And he again repeats this argument and, and carries it forward. For the willing is present in me, in verse 17, but the doing of the good is not. For the will, but not the doing. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So again, he reiterates that there is this conflict, that there is this good thing that he really does want to do but he's not doing it. What's the explanation? Why can't he carry it out? Why isn't delighting in the law enough for him to realize in his life and in, in the, the members of his flesh? Why isn't that enough? Why isn't delighting in the law enough for him to be able to, to consummate these good deeds that he would like to do? He comes to this conclusion in verse 20, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Again, reiterating that sin is this entity that dwells in him, in his flesh. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That he recognizes that there's a hostile agency, a hostile principle, a hostile power resident in the members of his flesh and the members of his body, waging war against him, waging war against the law that he delights in in his mind, and that agency in his flesh is more powerful than the delight that he takes in God's law. And so this then leads him to cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Why is this a wretched 
condition. It's wretched because despite his delight in God's law, there is still the same end result, sin's dominating power in the body. And if sin still has a dominating power in the body, he is still liable to the wrath of God. And that's an anguishing question. There's this inner man that delights in the law of God, and yet I see this hostile principle at at work in my body, and it, it seems to be the more powerful principle. Going back to chapter 2, Paul has said that those who do evil, uh, those who do not uh, obey the truth but obey uh, unrighteousness, those who carry out these actions, for them awaits wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so despite the fact that he delights in the law of God, he still finds that he's doing evil and is therefore liable to the wrath and the, and the judgment. And so he cries out, wretched man that I am, what power is there that can abolish sin from my flesh if I am to obtain life? There has to be something more at my disposal than just the law. Delighting in the law is not enough because there is a hostile power resident in my flesh. We can think about how this could apply to an unbeliever, to a law boaster, to someone who puts their confidence in the flesh. In chapter 2, Paul addressed someone who uh, apparently put his delight in the law. He was a teacher of the law. He instructed others in the law. And yet he himself did not do anything in the law. And, and so Paul asks him, you who you instruct others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And the, the implied answer is, well, yes, I do these things. And so then, why are you, you boasting in the law? Because the law is still going to bring wrath upon you. And one thing, one, one application of this text is, stop putting your confidence in the law, whether it's your ability to fulfill the law or whether it's simply having the law, whether it's knowing what the law says is good and approving with your mind that it's good. That doesn't lead to boasting. That leads to wretched man that I am. And so that reader, that listener, is brought along through chapter 7 to that perspective. And so for anyone here this evening who would put their confidence or their boast in the law, who thinks that they are capable of presenting before God a righteousness that they themselves have wrought, abandon such boasting. And come along, come along through chapter 7 and reach that conclusion. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this dead body? But for the Christian also, I think there is application that can be made from this text. That in this text we find somebody who delights in the law of God with their inner mind, 
we find somebody who really does delight in God's word and its teachings, and yet who nevertheless finds that there is an opposing enemy that is very, very close. And until that enemy is driven out of the body completely, there is an anguished cry that sounds from the lips of God's people. Have you ever considered that sin as an indwelling power never goes on vacation? That there's not five minutes every week from 12 p.m. to 12.05 p.m. where you can just say, I can let my guard down. Sin is on vacation. It's not going to try to oppose me. It's not going to try to tempt me. It's not going to try to uh, make me submit to the passions of this mortal body. That there's never five minutes where you can say, I can look at whatever I want and I'm not going to covet. I can listen to anything and it's not going to stir up within me some kind of uh, ungodly response to it but that every waking moment and, and even sleeping when you're dreaming that there is <laughs> this hostile power that is crouching at your door and whose desire is for you. Constantly hounding you, dogging you, wherever you go, because wherever you go, you go with this fleshy body. you consider that as long as you look at things, it is a possibility that what you see, you will begin to covet. It's a constant possibility that as you hear something coming in through the ears of your body, you will respond to it in an ungodly way. Here you are, driving to church of all places, and the kids are fighting in the back seat. And out of the front seat comes this ungodly eruption. That the flesh doesn't go on vacation. It doesn't take a break. Not even when you're on your way to church. Not even when you're sitting in church. We'll consider the young man who struggles with pornography. And he knows it's wrong, and he delights in God's law. And he says, God's law is good. I love the teaching of God's law. I love what God's word says about marriage. I love what it says about how it prefigures Christ. And I wish I could just be done with this sin, and I hate it. And yet, nevertheless, I find this strong physical urge, this strong passion within my body, and I want it to go away, and I ask God for it to go away, and it's still here. Or consider the Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. And they, again, know the teaching of God's word. And they delight in the teaching of God's word. And they want to be done with this sin in their life. And if they could press a button that would reorient their affections, they would press it a hundred times over. 
and yet they still find within their body a passion that comes up against their will. If I find in my own mind unwelcome thoughts, thoughts that are displeasing to God, that cause me much anguish, what is the conclusion that I must come to? That there is a hostile power, very, very close, one that's even dwelling in me, that is in my flesh. It is a common experience of the people of God that at times horrible thoughts, unholy, blasphemous, skeptical, malignant, crowd upon the mind which cannot be accounted for on any ordinary law of mental action and which cannot be dislodged. They stick like burning arrows and fill the soul with agony. Martin Luther, who said you can't keep uh, you can't prevent uh, birds from flying overhead, but you, can't, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And yet consider, where do those birds nest? Where, where are those birds coming from? From the flesh. From this fleshly body which you inhabit. So there is an anguished cry that rises from the heart and lips of the Christian too that longs for a redemption of this body where the presence and power of sin will be abolished and removed completely. So Paul writes in the following chapter that we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. That there is a groaning of the Christian that he must groan throughout his life until the redemption of his body. Is this groaning merely a groaning over the medical frailty of the body? Be sure that's, that can be included in this. That there are so many aspects of this mortal body that cause us to groan. But is it not also the, the closeness of that hostile power and agency dwelling in the flesh, making war against us, that, that power of sin that is seeking to reign in your mortal body that causes you much distress and much grief and causes you to cry out, who will deliver me from this dead body? And so we lament when we consider what power the law gives to us to eradicate sin, it leads to lament, but it also leads to lament because it reveals the closeness of indwelling sin right there with you. And yet, this is not where Paul leaves us. We move forward into verse 25 from lament to thanksgiving. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he will develop this further in chapter 8, but right now it's just that simple statement of thanksgiving. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
that God has answered this anguished cry that arises from the lips of, of those who are experiencing, who are walking through Romans 7. And they find that God has provided an answer. And there is, for the Christian, this, this question of who will, who will God condemn? Will he condemn me as the one carrying out the actions in the flesh, or will he condemn sin dwelling in me? And the answer that Paul gives in chapter 8 is that God condemns sin in the flesh. In the flesh of his own son. That God sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for, uh, and for sin. In order to condemn sin in the flesh. Because the law was weak. And here comes Jesus Christ, the one in whom the execution, that wrath, that judgment that awaited uh, the one who carried out wicked deeds has now been accounted. Those, uh, the sin, those sins have now been accounted to Christ. And in him, God has condemned sin in the flesh. And so that you may not stop with the lament of verse 24, that you do not stop with wretched man that I am, but you move forward into verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is also good news for the person who finds sin to be a dominating power in their life, because in Jesus Christ also comes the Spirit. And it is by this Spirit that true progress in this war against sin, in this war for the body, that progress can be made through the enabling power of Christ's <clears throat> excuse me, of Christ's spirit. That Christ, by his spirit, really does make it possible to grow in holiness. One misapplication of Romans 7 has been, or one way that it is sometimes taken, is if even the Apostle Paul struggled with sin in this way, then I might as well give up. I might as well not even try to do anything that is pleasing to God. I might as well hand myself over to uh, a sin, uh, resign myself to these sins which plague me. And Paul will go on to make clear in chapter 8 that not only is there the forgiveness of the guilt because God has condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son, but also now it is not just sin that dwells in your flesh, but he will say that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. And it's that Holy Spirit who will overcome and abolish sin from the body. And who will eventually bring that, the body to that future state in which it will become a spiritual body. In which you will enjoy a life in which there are no intruding thoughts. In which the eyes are not windows by which covetousness enters into your heart. In which your ears are not the instruments through which Sin enters and seeks to stir up an ungodly response. But that the work of the Spirit through Christ will be brought to fruition in the resurrection of the body. And so this is our hope. This is what we give thanks to God for, that he has done this in Christ already, that he has already raised Christ from the dead, that we have seen the first fruits of humanity with a, spirit, uh, with a spiritual body raised from the dead 
and that that same spirit that indwells Christ now indwells us. And he's bringing us to that point as well. But until then, there is that cry that also sounds from our lips, asking God to hasten and bring to completion that work which he has begun in us. And so we hold side by side both this cry of lament and the song of thanksgiving to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and that you have condemned sin in the flesh, that we might have eternal life through him. We ask that you would give us the grace of your Spirit as we war against sin in our bodies, that we would not let it have the mastery over us, but by the enabling power of your Spirit, we would indeed put to death the deeds of the body. We pray these things in Jesus' name, giving you thanksgiving.